You're listening to an Imagine More podcast. The presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 Get That Good Life Conference. Hi, my name is Gar. I am here to introduce the Robertson and Sir lives in New Zealand. She work with people with disability for over 30 years. So lives in inclusion and families leadership. And so he's been uh, affected for Susan for more than 20 years. And today, she's where to own Susan's story. It's called Energy and Living Well. I hope you enjoy listening to Sue. Thank you, Gus. That was a lovely introduction. And hi, everyone, to who's listening. Now, look, before I start, I'm working from home because New Zealand's in level three lockdown which is essentially drive-through with takeout. And we may be joined by our daughter today, Katie, who you may have heard her story yesterday. And um, and that's just how it is, and we'll deal with that. But today, I'm here to talk about Susan. So Susan is the lady in the black T-shirt on the left of the photo, and the lady in blue is myself. And that's a photo taken at Susan's house uh, this year. And it is her house, it is her home, and that's where she um, has a place that she can call home. And and she would have loved to have joined us today, but because of those lockdown restrictions, all Susan can do is say hello. And I met up with her on Sunday, actually. Uh, I was able to have a contactless picnic and just go through the presentation so that she had a chance to edit or change anything that she wanted me to edit or to change anything that she wanted me to take out. But she was good with this, so I just want you to know that because there are many ways to share a story. And so how I've chosen to share Susan's story today and and my story too, because I am Susan's advocate, is I've hung it on a, a bit of a framework. So I've used Jamal Armstrong's presentation where he talked about the three pillars, which is, am I good, am I competent, and am I worthy of love? And the second string is citizen advocacy. And we have a saying in citizen advocacy, one person at a time, again and again and again and again and again. And the third part of the framework is our New Zealand Healthy Aging Strategy Vision, which is that older people in New Zealand live well, we age well, and the strategy aims to maximise health and well-being for older people. And while it wasn't specifically written for people who have a range of impairments, I thought it was a very good policy document to use. So how to share Susan's story? Well, what Susan was happy for me to do was, I believe you have to know Susan's backstory. 
because Susan's story is about holding on and it's holding on to a vision of what makes life worth living. So we're going on a bit of a journey. Susan's a few years older than me. She's of retirement age and uh, she has her gold card now in New Zealand, which enables her to various discounts, including free travel and public transport and all those things, which she's learning to use. She's had a hard life, which you can read on her face. And after 20 years of knowing Susan, I know only little parts of her. And at that, only the part she wants me to know. In New Zealand, we have a New Zealand Royal Commission um, at the moment looking into the historic abuse of people in care. And Susan has agreed to talk with someone from the commission. And perhaps part of that meeting might reveal a little bit more of the mystery of who Susan is. What I do know about my friend is that she has great capacity for love. She is a person who has been loved. She's been misused, abused, and she's been taken care of. And she's a lady who's suffered great loss. Over the time that I've known Sue, she's uh, consistently declined to reconnect with her family, and I don't know why. I keep on offering at various times, but she declines. And I think she is someone who, at the age of 17, was admitted to the first of two institutions that she spent some of her early years with. She's been married three times and she's been in several long-term relationships. And her first husband, by all accounts, was a, a good man. She talks of him as being a good man. He was older than her and he was one of the nurses who worked at the institution. And they weren't married that long before he died unexpectedly. And uh, he left her his assets and his home, which were held in trust by the public trust, which administers her financial affairs. Suze won't talk about her second husband. I didn't know she had one till a few years ago when we were sitting in the car going nowhere in particular, not even connected, and she randomly started talking about her second husband. And all she will say of him was, he was not a good man. Her third husband, I learned on Sunday, she was married to him for 22 years. But somewhere in the course of that relationship, they failed to keep up the repayments and the house that she was able to buy on the proceeds of her husband, first husband, meant that that house was sold. And her fourth partner, life partner, who she met, died unexpectedly about four years ago. So Susan has been rendered homeless through some of those associations. And despite the fact that she actually has plenty of money these days, she is really reluctant to spend it and she is very scared of running out. And she's a lady who's still at risk of giving her money away to a good story or bullying tactics because she'll do anything to stay in a relationship, no matter what those issues are. Because I think uh, to love and be loved is a universal desire. And love brings with it so many valued roles. So I know this of Susan. She's a survivor, she's courageous, and she's far more capable than she knows. 
that her wounding experiences of a lifetime go deep and they always sit close to the decisions, to the surface of all the decisions that she makes. So I don't know the circumstances, but I know Suze has been homeless and she is always, always fearful of losing the home that she lives in. She's a lady who has received a very poor education and she really struggles to believe that she's competent at anything and she tends to give up very easily. I learned on Sunday that she has had a paid job in her lifetime um, at the same workplace as her brother and sister when she was 17, 17 to 19. She worked uh, doing some form of electrical work before she uh, left that job. She wouldn't talk about it, but she left at 19, and I know at 19 that's when she moved into the second institution she was to receive some care in. So I imagine some trauma occurred at that time. So one of the undercurrent themes of Susan's conversations and decisions is this. Am I good? Am I good? Am I good enough? And it's interesting because the day I met Susan is a story that she really likes to share. And we have shared it on a public stage before. I was working in a professional capacity at the time. And Sus was being evicted from her flat that I learned later on she'd been living with with her second ex-husband. And she literally had nowhere to go. She was only partially moved out. She had two dogs and it was an incredibly chaotic scene. The community constable was waiting to arrest her, but he didn't really want to because Susan was somewhere who, who neither our mental health services or our disability support services, didn't want to have responsibility for. Each said the other was responsible for providing the service, and neither did. And I suspect that because neither wanted to pay. So over the next few years, we sorted out who had lead responsibility in that field, because she literally had no one in her life and nowhere to go. So... I was involved with Susan for a while in my professional capacity as care coordinator for an organisation that had been set up to support people who had offended or who were at risk of offending under the Crimes Act and who had an intellectual disability. And when I left that job, I left it for a little while because that was the right thing to do. And I went back to Citizen Advocacy, um, who I was connected with and I said, I think there's a lady out in our community who has no one in her life and I really feel that she might be in need of an advocate. Would you be willing to go and have a conversation with her and see if, just see where that might go? And that was the beginning of Susan's and my relationship through citizen advocacy. So advocacy hasn't always been about advocating. It's actually partly been about friendship. Although I'm 100% sure if Susan sees me as a friend or if she sees me as a necessity because she does struggle to advocate for herself and to navigate the systems, the sometimes complex systems that are out there. And she struggles to be listened to and 
she doesn't have access to the technology and skills or the confidence to use the technology to communicate with. And we are so in a world of technology for communication. This has really been a source of frustration for Susan. I think um, the UN Convention has a thing or two to say about communication, and one of them is leave no one behind. And I think it's an advocacy issue that we need to uh, keep front to mind. But anyway, advocating for Susan hasn't been a dream run, I can tell you. I have been fired multiple times um, as I've advocated for her through thick and thin. Sometimes I've been fired because she hasn't got what she's wanted, and I'm no saint. Look, honestly, I've been pleased to have the break from time to time because the advocacy issues are never ending. You might resolve one and another pops up. And sometimes it's just relentless and sometimes it's tough because there's always been something to advocate for when someone as so vulnerable as Susan remains in view of services. So I've done my best over the years to support Susan to grow some intentional networks. And I talk about making a friend, growing a friend, keeping a friend, um, because that sequence of things requires a different skill set at different ages and stages. But Susan is someone who prefers to have a limited number of people in her life. And I worry about that because I worry about the time when I'm not around. And one of the things I did was Sue's last drinking coffee. And so I thought, hmm. I, I went out to our local community rag that people keep leaving on coffee, you know, coffee tables when we're allowed to go to coffee shops and set out a, a pano, as we call it, a call for someone who might be interested in being a coffee buddy. And that worked out for a little bit, but um, Susan doesn't like bossy people and um, she was soon dispatched, really. So what I've learned about Susan, she has the capacity to love one person at a time. We've also tried to provide her with a sense of belonging uh, with our own Robertson family. So Susan spent many Christmases with us. We've gone on holiday together, as you can see here, having a, a little sunset drink in the Coromandel. And uh, no, we've spent time in the kitchen, having a chat and talking. And when she hasn't spent time with us, I've made sure we have uh, phone calls. So during COVID-level lockdown, for example, we call each other twice a day. I do check in at lunchtimes and in the evening. Or, or if she chooses not to, that's fine. But she is currently living on her own. And like all of us, um, we're now 11 weeks into lockdown. And she's doing really well, but she's lonely. So um, checking in is really important. I think the other thing I want to say about this slide is, although I look really young and useful on that slide, gosh, looking good there, so I have to say that I am retiring next year mid-January to another town and um, because I'm looking to get that gold card as well at the end of the year and I think I've done my dash with systemic ad advocacy but instrumental advocacy is another matter and I'm just not sure what that day-to-day -day instrumental advocacy for Susan's going to look like and I know Susan's worried too. So what was life like for, for Susan in her 50s? 
Um, I know she turned 60 in, in care and uh, citizen, uh, she turned 50 and 60 it was and citizen advocacy helped her to celebrate. A friend of mine made the cake. Susan and I went on a fabulous holiday on Waiheke Island uh, with the maid that her citizen advocacy friends had contributed as her birthday gift. And it took many more years after that for Susan to move from her supported living service. She'd moved to that service under order, and the supported service had a reputation for having a big heart for taking in people who had mental health issues and learning impairments. And Sue spent many years living in the service. It was rural. There was no public transport. She was dependent on paid staff to go anywhere. And the service did seem to be perpetually short-staffed. And at some point, those orders were lifted. I know not, because I was no longer in that role. But Susan remained. And I don't know if anyone ever told her she didn't really have to. Throughout this time, she was perpetually discontented, constantly agitated to get out, and absolutely powerless to effect change. And I think I'd like to confess at this stage that I struggled to be an effective advocate as I parented my family. You may have heard a little bit of our story yesterday when I talked about Katie. And I was working full time. And Susan needed more time than I had to give. Um, the most we could do was include Sue's in our family life as much as possible. The rest of the time, she spent weekends with her partner, who she'd met at the time I first professionally met her, and weekends were the only free time I had. So we stayed connected by including Susan in our family life and um, through attending the citizen advocacy events. Suze had found her next love in the paper. She was, um, it was a trade and exchange, uh, which was an effective mechanism for finding someone to love pre-computer and pre-tint. So she was supported by the service to um, go in and, and um, uh, live with her partner Friday to Sunday nights. But under the funding arrangement, she wasn't able to live any longer. And there were a whole variety of circumstances that wouldn't have made that successful. One of the advocacy issues that sat there at the time was um, Suze would give her partner nearly all her money. And at times he would place pressure on her to get access to the money that she had left over from her first husband, the money that was held in trust. And this related to the living conditions um, that were really not the best because her next partner had a hoarding problem, hoarding problem of TV proportions. And the desire, this desire to be loved, meant Susan accepted those living conditions. And I have to confess, I could not bring myself to even go inside to have a cup of tea. I would um, just call out and say, hi, you ready, Sus? And, um, and then we'd go off and visit. I think I mentioned that Susan had suffered great loss because then her partner dropped dead. It was an unexpected death. And what that meant was that Susan lost her weekend home. And it took some strong advocacy to negotiate 20 supervised minutes for Susan to go inside a locked house. The public trust locked it down, negotiated 20 minutes 
for this lady, this mature lady, to be able to get inside her weekend home that she shared with her her partner to get her weekend possessions. And we literally threw things into black plastic rubbish bags before we were escorted out again. And I have to say, some sometime before that, two of his mates had got access and took stuff before the public trust padlocked the house again. The um, public trust auctioned what they could and the rest was dumped. So Susan had a partner, her second home, and she was dispossessed. Curiously, this next part of her story um, worked for her. Susan was supported to bury her partner, and she's really fond of talking about the fact that she gave him a good send-off. She was in control. She made decisions about the coffin, the service, what photos, and the after-gathering and what to eat. But as is the way, no one who attended the funeral has since stayed in touch with her beyond those first few sympathy cards. And Susan and I made many trips to the cemetery before she met her next partner. The partner who died unexpectedly left her his home in his will, and I truly believe he ordered for Susan to own it and to live in it. However, it was sold very quickly by the public trust, who was Susan's property manager, because the property still had a mortgage on it that Susan couldn't afford, and because he'd built the house without code of compliance, and she didn't have the resources to repair what was needed to uh, maintain the property or pay rates or cover her living expenses. Because I think when you've lived in a world of benefits, it's very hard. Uh, money's very hard. Uh, not necessarily to come by, but even to have control over. So when the probate was settled, the house was eventually sold. And this left Susan with enough money to be able to move out of her supported living service into a more independent living arrangement. And I have to say, without that money, Susan would still be living in the land of services. So think without extra resource, many disabled people live in poverty with restricted choices about where they live and who they live with. So it took some time to advocate Susan to support her to choose a service provider and to secure the disability funding and services. Neil and I considered at the time whether we would put it to Susan and see if she wanted to move to an individualised funding arrangement. It meant that we would put our hands up to be agents. But Neil and I were really struggling at the time with what we needed to do to secure our own daughter's long-term arrangements and our own good lives. And in the end, we determined we really did need the support of the provider um, to support what Susan. So, the big move. Susan's coming up for her third year living in a home she can call her own. I think there's something sad about a 67-year-old seeking constant reassurance about being good, which translates to, I'm scared this isn't going to last and it could be taken away from me at any time. Sue's had to share a flat with one other person being supported by the service because it was a financial necessity. 
And prior to moving day, they were supported to meet up with each other and see if they liked each other enough to share their living arrangements. And I think it should come as no surprise that they both said yes, because I think they were both desperate to move away from their current living arrangements. And they got on well for a year before they didn't. A few weeks before moving, I offered to wash all Susan's clothes. And in doing that, I found a bag of screwed up rubbish and I took a photo of it. That's the slide that you're looking at. I nearly threw out. Then I thought, oh no, I won't throw out anything I haven't double checked and passed by Sue's. And what in that pile of rubbish um, are Susan's first wedding certificate, her birth certificate, and lots of correspondence between her, the bank, the public trust and lawyers. A sad, sad trail that tracked how Susan had lost her home, her first home. And this screwed up rubbish filled in some missing parts of her life story and and it brought home for me an understanding and fresh insight into the impact of wounding. I took every single paper, I smoothed and ironed out each bit of paper because I thought she might like them returned. And three years later, she is still refusing to have them back. So they sit in a box with me at the moment, hopefully at a time when she's ready to say, yeah, look, I'll have them back at my place. Susan is perpetually scared of having no money, and although she has plenty of money managed by the public trust, she hates spending it. Look, regardless, prior to shifting, she consented to go and buy new clothes, shoes, bed sheets, towels, etc., because I really was advocating for her to move in with new possessions, not the third, third hand and fourth hand me down uh, bits and pieces of her life that she was living with. The public trust, these are interesting systems, aren't they? The public trust required me to get quotes in triplicate for what we wanted to buy for the flat. Who has time for that? Uh, Farah, this is not a full-time paperwork. I am here, citizen advocacy. We get freely given relationship and I was holding down a full-time job and parenting at the time. So who has time for all that? I was also required to spend my own money and then get reimbursed. And I do wonder if Susan didn't have an advocate, how she might ever have got to have spent her own money. So Susan's advocate, I make it my business to ensure I build good working relationships with the professionals um, at public trust, and there have been several of them over the year. They come and go, sometimes without saying goodbye. But anyway, finally, moving day arrived, and I thought I had lost the capacity to be shocked, but not, because the sternness that Susan had lived in for several years did not offer to move her. My husband, Neil, and I, and a staff member from her news service, who had the weekend off, helped me to move Susan. We arrived to find that she still hadn't finished packing, despite many weeks of knowing when the moving date was, and most of her possessions were packed in open fruit and veggie cardboard boxes and black plastic rubbish bags. Look, I know full well advocating for Susan to live in her own place with just enough support was always going to challenge the system. And as a parent advocate, I've always resisted the readiness trap. Susan was a woman who needed opportunities, not systemic barriers to living an ordinary life, lived well in communities. 
So this is a photo of Sue's this year looking glam, wearing her pearls and denim jacket at her path planning session that we did this year pre-lockdown. Um, and Susan, with some support, had catered for her guests who'd come. A year after um, Susan just moved, and this is choice and community living. This is this is around um, funding that is contracted to a provider of choice, and that provider supports Susan to live the life uh, that she's imagined for herself. There really is a limit to what that funding purchase. And there are some rules around that. But anyway, Susan was now living in her own flat. That flat was newly built. She was the first person to live in it. And as I said, uh, shared with a flatmate. So after a year after moving in, Susan had two jobs. Now remember, she hadn't worked since she was 17. She'd had two jobs. One was voluntary work looking after animals at a working farm just down the road from where she lived because she loves animals and she's got a really caring nature and she really enjoyed the work at first. Um, but she had a bossy co-worker and Susan doesn't respond well to being bossed around, especially by people younger than her. The second job was paid work for vacuuming because actually Sue's loves vacuuming. Although I suspect she liked the social contact and stopping for cups of tea more than working um, and even more, she really liked the money. And don't we all? I had read about the impact of institutionalization, but it's quite another thing to see the impact on this on someone you care about and advocate for. As I said, Sue's gives up very easily and she wants and expects to be looked after. And at the same time, she wants to be free of all supports. And so she constantly seeks reassurance. Doing good, Sue Robertson, Natal. Doing good. But as I said, she she doesn't have much self-confidence around learning. So one of our points of tension over the last three years has been the mobile phone. And the intent behind the mobile phone for someone like Susan who grew up on the old dial phones set on the kitchen bench was um, she thinks she's stupid. That's what she says. I'm stupid. I can't learn. I can't do this and um, I want a landline but landlines are being phased out Sue's has a poor sense of direction and one of the things in CICL is it's being provided with transport like you are in a supported living environment isn't provided for and Susan was going to have to learn public transport and I thought at the time a mobile phone meant that she would be able to use it. If she got lost or she needed any help, she could just um, give me a call. So we'd, we have struggled our way through two mobile phones and it hasn't been easy. Susan feels validated and valued through all her relationships. And she is a person who would rather have any man than no man. So she seeks love. She finds it wherever she looks for it, and then she commits to that love through thick and thin. And as I've described, I slightly skipped over some of her great losses of many relationships, loss of people in her natural networks, loss of life partners and husbands, and she's also lost many, many countless staff who were paid to be there. 
and have all left with no further contact. And she's also lost contact with people she's lived with in services and who left behind. And Susan's typically someone who doesn't want to do anything to stay connected or to seek them out, which is um, quite a challenge for supporting her to grow her own intentional networks, make friends, uh, find people to have a cup of tea or coffee with, invite over. Uh, It doesn't come easy to her. She's great at paying her bills. She's insistent on paying her bills, and she frets when the public trust haven't paid them, and I'm pretty much sure this comes from loss from losing her homes and being rendered homeless. Because debt in the past means you lose where you live. And how she expresses her fears is she hears she she hears voices. So she talks about overhearing other people talk about her saying things like, she's not good enough to live here. She doesn't know how to use her phone. She should be living in a group home. The service isn't going to be around anymore. She hears people say the landlord says she can't stay or she has to move. And at times I've gone to behaviour services or mental health services say, I'm no expert in mental health. It's my friend hearing voices. But you know what? I'm pretty sure Susan saying she's hearing voices is her way of expressing her fears. And I have to say, it gives me great insight, she's thinking, and what those fears are. So she has learned to use her mobile phone. She uses it a lot, even when she says she can't. She takes great pride in keeping her home tidy. She's a great housekeeper. She needs simple things to do, like changing the vacuum cleaner bag. And we've made arrangements with a cleaning crew once a month, which she pays for, for a deep clean, to keep on top of the bits and pieces and corners um, that need attention. And every so often, she's a person who needs support to declutter once in a while. She is the most fabulous pet owner. After six months and many hoops, because uh, she had to get permission from her flatmate and under uh, the flatting arrangement, she had to pay for a cat door to be put in and she'll have to pay for it to be pulled out again if she moves, all those sorts of things. She is a pet owner. And she, Neil, and I went to the SBCA and had a good old look at who was on offer. And she finally bought Romeo home from the SBCA. And Romeo has been loved a bit ever since. Susan is a very competent woman in many areas of her life. But the New Zealand courts decided competency. And while courts decided she was competent to be able to give informed consent and make decisions about her health and welfare, um, which means um, there was no welfare guardian appointed. The public trust was appointed as a property manager, and that's continued to be renewed over the years and does provide a measure of safeguarding from predators who are out there and Susan's own good nature. I have enduring power of attorney uh, for a time when she needs someone to make a decision for her on her behalf, but I hope that time never comes, but it's there as a safeguard. And I keep a good working relationship with the public trust related to money, bills being paid on time, and the biggest challenge, encouraging Susan to spend her money on things that will enhance her own quality of life. Now, look, after years of being serviced, 
and I use that term advisedly, Susan does expect to be cared for and her current funders services mean she's expected to pay her own way, including finding her own transport, although she's been very well provided by her current provider in this regard. And her own resistance to buying new things has been a constant challenge. However, she is living in a place she can call her home, her home, and I've ensured that her name is on the tenancy agreement and she's as secure as it's possible to make it. And she has a key to her own front door. So, back to this path plan. And we went right out there, man. In 2034, Susan turns the good age of 80. Look forward to celebrating her 80th with her. She is a lady with very few interests. She's a heavy smoker, which impacts on uh, much of her day-to-day activity. She loves cats and dogs and pets. She likes listening to the radio and she likes drinking tea and coffee. She has an active resistance to learning or trying anything new in case she fails. And that doesn't make life easy for her. So building a vision of what makes life good for Susan was a really important thing to do, particularly if I'm moving away from the city that she's going to be living in. So I've been facilitating park plans for years now, and I think it's a really good planning tool. Fit for purpose, there are many planning tools, and path has its place at the right time, fit for purpose. So after three years of Susan living in her own place, it was really time for Susan to challenge herself. And I was especially mindful that she hadn't joined anything or made any new friends, because somehow she sees us as other people's work to do. She's actively resistant joining things in her community and she's resisted making a friend who wasn't going to be a love interest or an intimate partner and that's been challenging at times to support Sue's to grow a whole network of friends who want to be in her life and who are not paid to be there. And path planning is a really great, great process for thinking about how we grow and build intentional networks. Susan's guests at her path are still people who are paid to be in her life apart from one other person from Family Network and myself. Everyone else was paid to be there. And I think that's a reflection of the work that needs to be done. Susan, at the time we did this path plan, was beginning to settle for less and uh, everyone needed to be challenged, including the service. And I have to say to you, path is a pretty picture unless it's put to work. So there were four key areas that aligned with the New Zealand Aging World Strategy in Susan's path plan, and these are connecting, being active, keeping learning, giving, and being well-supported. And through this planning process, Susan identified actually plenty of things she was willing to give a go, life-tasting, as I call it. The challenge is that she will need active support to see her plans through because Susan is someone who will give all of this up for love because Susan has found love again and I have to take responsibility for this. I call it the sausage casserole story because when Susan first moved into a flat, I offered to go and uh, teach Susan how to cook my famous sausage casserole recipe. It's been with me ever since I was a student, and that was 
longer than I care to remember ago. But anyway, and I asked her if she'd like to invite a couple of people to that um, cooking. And, and the cooking was in her kitchen. So I thought it was a way to invite people into her space and she could get to know them over um, cooking and then eating that meal together. Anyway, um, one other person came. I didn't think they, I don't even think they looked at each other during the cooking class. I swear to you, they didn't. But anyway, uh, they must have noticed each other because uh, they connected very soon afterwards. And within a matter of a few weeks, they were engaged. So it took another year after she met her next life partner for Susan's flatmate to find somewhere she wanted to live. And that actually gave Susan and her new partner uh, more of an opportunity to know each other. And for various reasons, he was not able to move into that flat. And I think the challenge to choice and control, Dave Hingsberger talks about this, the challenges don't only come from services and systems. They also come from within ourselves. So Susan's partner was very insistent about moving in as soon as possible. But Susan wasn't so sure, so she was on again, off again. Yes, I do. No, I don't. And then part of my advocacy support was actually needed to just just keep things on hold while Susan really made up her mind and finally said, yes, I want to move forward with this relationship. But sadly, before the move could be made, COVID then placed everything on hold. So there we are. Thank you, Sue. That was such a beautiful story of friendship and kindness. And have we got Katie visiting? We have got Katie. I wonder if she's going to make her first international conference um, presentation. Uh, Say hello to Australia. Uh, we are all breathing it. Great. We are, we're two hours ahead of you all in New Zealand. And Katie, I don't know how she does it. Clearly, it's five o'clock and she's getting her tea ready. So we'll. That's it. Hello. 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 Hi, Katie. <laughs> oh, I'm so pleased. We're very happy. <laughs> Susan, I've got a couple of questions for you um, from the audience. So what is the plan for when you move? What safeguards have you got in place for Susan? Well, um, First of all, the public trust who manage her finances, the, the, the property manager, they will continue to be the property manager appointed through the court. And so the safeguarding around her financial arrangement are well in place, right? Uh, I think that the other safeguarding of advocacy support needs, it, it's a conundrum. It's, it's an issue. For, uh, I have been back to citizen advocacy to say, Look, is there someone who lives in Auckland who could continue to provide what we call instrumental day-to-day advocacy for Susan? It can be quite time-consuming, but really finding the right advocate is really important. And I'm very mindful that if I was simply to move to a pure friendship point of view and stay in touch with Susan, that that would be another wounding experience for her. So. What I've agreed to do is stay involved as Susan's advocate, freely given, and try and manage that remotely. Like we're all living in a post-COVID world. And so many of our communications, much of what I know that goes on in Susan's life, 
we talk about over a phone now. And so I can keep that connection and lens going and I can continue to advocate for Susan using technology. And I think what I'll also do, what, what I've said to Susan is, won't it be great when you'll be able to come down to Matamata where we retire and spend time with us down there? And I think time is where some of those uh, conversations come out and where, you know, you just have time to share your worries and your concerns. And then that will highlight for me anything Susan might want me to advocate for. She's 67. I'm nearly of retirement age. Um, who will be there for Susan if I go before her? I don't know. I wish I, I wish I had an answer, but I don't know. At best, she is connected through citizen advocacy. I was just going to say it's such a strong movement that's also very tied to social valorization and something that um, has just warmed my heart that um, that exists, but I think there needs to be a lot more of it. But just following on from that thread, there's another question around, do you have any knowledge about using disability trust for benefit of the person with disability, especially after guardians and parents die? Uh, that could be a bit of an Australian um, question, but you might know about some disability oh, trust. We do have a, a few, a small number of um, similar type trusts uh, that I that I could introduce Susan to because it's her choice. Um, uh, most of them come with some form of payment. I'd be hugely surprised if Susan was prepared to pay for advocacy services, but she could, and it's worth pursuing. I also really strongly believe in the in the strength and value of intentional networks or circles of support. Do you know, it's been so hard to identify people who will be part of a circle from Susan because, as I said, most of the people in her life are paid to be there and she is someone who resists meeting new people. So even growing those networks or intentional networks has been a challenge. It is a challenge of advocacy. But knowing you, you will continue to strive to create that for, for Susan. But, look, I am mindful we are out of time, but I just want to say a huge thank you, Sue, for sharing that story. And I'm thrilled that Katie has made her first appearance of a international conference. Um, I wish she joined us yesterday. But, look, thank you so much. And, yeah, I look forward to spending more time with you and learning more about how you've supported uh, other people and also the people to live a good life. So thank you. Thank you very much, Dan, and thank Gus. It was a lovely introduction. Thank you. You've been listening to an Imagine More podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go to imaginemore.org.au for more great content.